Well, good morning, church. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Landon Flick, and I get the honor and pleasure of serving on staff here as the youth coordinator. We are in this series that we are ca- calling Counterculture Church, uh, venturing through the book of 1 Corinthians, and today we're going to be in chapter 10. So like I said, we're going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, uh, verses 1 through 22. And it says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone, anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you, sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So with that, I would just invite you to pray. Sometimes Pastor Craig has us pray specific prayers, and I would just ask you to pray today that, that God would bring to light any idols that, that are in your life. As I pray for us collectively, you pray that now. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today, God, humbled that we are able to read your word, and we pray, God, that today you would just help us to understand your word. God, open up our minds, our hearts, and our eyes and our ears to to hear what you have to to show us today, God. I pray that you would just bring to light any potential idols that we could be worshiping and not putting you on the throne of our heart, God. I pray that you would just uh, speak through me now, God, Holy Spirit, that you would just uh, relate to your people what I've learned this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in our 21st century minds, whenever we hear the word idol, I think that, that our, our mind goes immediately to something like this. So, this is a baby Buddha doll. Uh, the only reason I know that is because they are sometimes found in Chinese restaurants, and I love Chinese food. Uh, I support our local Ming's Garden restaurant regularly, mostly because she always has my order ready in 10 minutes, and she always lets me know that. So, um, but like I said, like, this is an idol, no doubt. This is an idol. This is a, this is a Buddha doll. Um, but... I think that idols in our culture today 
rarely look like this one. I would say that uh, to an extent, every person that's sitting in this audience right now, including me, practices idolatry to one degree or another. It's almost as if our hearts are little idol-making factories, as John Calvin says, and you've also heard Pastor Craig say that sometimes. I believe that we can even take good things and elevate them to become idols. The heart of idolatry is essentially loving something more than you love God. And Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, puts it really well. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give only what God can give. I don't know about you, but whenever I heard that, I was pretty convicted about some things in my life. And I believe that this definition helps us to understand a little bit about what Jesus was saying in uh, Luke 14, 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus isn't saying that we actually have to hate those people because we're not called to hate anyone. But he's saying that in comparison, your love for these people in comparison to your love for me should be so much less than your love for me. That It looks like hate in comparison. You should love me so much more than you love these other people that it should look like hate in comparison. If your love for people that he just mentioned is greater than your love for God, that is in essence idolatry. Keller goes on to say in his book, a counterfeit God or an idol is something so central and essential to your life that should you lose that thing, your life would hardly feel worth living. So I ask you today, what are you afraid of losing in your life? What are, is, is something in your life that if you were to lose it, you would have no will, no want to, no willpower to live anymore? So I asked on, uh, on Facebook last week, I asked people, what are the biggest idols in today's culture? Whether it be in your life or someone else's life or whatever it may be. And here's the responses that I got. So I got sports, the Packers, kids, kids sports, social media, politics, work, perfection, pets, control, security, comfort, sugar, and other foods. To the, to the sugar and other foods one, I, uh, I heard a guy say one time, he said, well, if our bodies are God's temple, then I'm a megachurch. Well, that's funny. Like, it, it just shows us that everybody is, it has an idol that they worship, and, and some people's idols are just visible while others are private. This is what was going on in the Corinthian church, too. They're, they're, they're asking the question, Paul, what about idolatry? What about idolatry? And I think it's so interesting how Paul responds here. He uses the Bible to answer their question. I wonder how many times in our life that we're asking God a question. We're like, God, I need an answer to this question. I need your help in this situation. Where are you, God? I need an answer. Why aren't you answering me? And I think God's saying, like, it's in my word. If you just go read my word, you would already have the answer that you've been searching for and praying about. I would just challenge you that if you're, you're asking those questions, go, go and read God's word. But Paul luckily doesn't say that. He answers their question, and he says in verses 1 and 2, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul takes them back to Exodus, and he, he's, he's in the time of Moses, and he's saying they were all baptized into Moses. So this is true, actually. So they were baptized into Moses. So if you remember right, the, the word baptism means to simply be identified with or identified in. So like today, whenever we are baptized, whenever we go to the beach and do our baptism, baptism service, 
We're just simply identifying ourselves as public followers of Christ. That's what we're doing. And these people in, in the book of Exodus were simply identifying themselves as followers of Moses, who was a follower of God. So they're saying, I'm no longer putting my authority under Moses. I'm no longer, or I'm no longer under Pharaoh. Now I'm going to be under Moses. And I'm, I'm under Moses because he's under God. So I'm under God's authority. And then he continues on in verses 3 and 4, and he says, All ate the same spiritual food, and all ate, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So Paul gets deeper into the book of Exodus here, and, and he says that they ate the same spiritual food, which is in reference to Exodus 16. Um, actually, Exodus 16, verse 4, which says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what happened here was God provided manna for his people that were in the desert. Um, so what they would have to do is they would have to go out and gather a day's portion and uh, whatever they could eat for that day. And then the rest of it would shrivel up and they'd have to have faith in God that he was going to provide for the next day for their, their, for their physical need of hunger. And then I think, I think uh, what Paul says next here is even more astounding. He says that they drank the same spiritual drink from a rock, and the rock was Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul is referring to Exodus again here in Exodus 17, 5 and 6, which says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So we see that the Israelites were able to drink from this rock that, that Moses struck, and, and Paul says that this rock is Christ. It's Jesus. Pretty crazy, but, but how do they get water to go with them wherever they traveled throughout the, de the desert, right? Because they were in the desert, and it was hot, and they were traveling all over, and uh, how do they get this water rock to travel with them? Well, Paul says it followed them, but the, the word that Paul uses to describe this rock is the Greek word Petros. So this Greek word Petros uh, describes a rock that is small enough to carry. So this rock was small. They, they, maybe a couple guys would carry it, but the, this rock was small enough to carry, and it provided for their physical need of thirst. So we see Christ all the way back in the time of creation, and then we see him in the book of Exodus, and then we see him all throughout the Old Testament, all the way until he comes. I think it's so cool how the Bible is one complete story with Christ all throughout it. Then Paul makes a shift here in 1 Corinthians 10.5. He says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Nevertheless, God wasn't pleased with them. He wasn't pleased. Why wasn't he pleased? Because they were practicing idolatry. So even though they were, he, he was providing for their, their spiritual needs, whatever they needed, that he was providing it, he wasn't pleased with them spiritually. Even though he was providing for their physical hunger and physical thirst, he wasn't pleased with it, where they were spiritually. And that's my first point today, is that despite God's provision, he still hates our sin. Despite God's provision, he still hates our sin. Despite God's provision, he still hates our sin. So even though he provided for their physical needs in the wilderness, he wasn't pleased with their lives spiritually. I think that we think so often that because God is providing for our, our physical needs, whatever we need, he's providing it, that he's pleased with where we are spiritually. And I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that's a big mis misunderstanding. I honestly think that if our lives are, are smooth sailing and always peaceful, I think the enemy doesn't see us as a threat. 
I think if we have bumps in the road and trials and troubles like the Bible says we're going to have, I think that is when we, we know our lives are on the right path. When we focus only on God's provision in our life, we lose sight of our purpose. When we focus only on God's provision in our life, we lose sight of the purpose that he's called us to. And Paul begins to flesh out their purpose in, in verses 6 through 12. He says, now these things, he says, now these things uh, took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters if some of them were. And then he goes on to talk about the sexual immorality and all the things that they were doing that were terrible, that were rampant, and how 23,000 people were slain in a single day because of a plague that God sent because he was so angry with their idolatry. And then in verse 12, he says this. He says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. He's saying here, if, if you think you aren't worshiping an idol, if you think you aren't sinning, you better be careful of criticizing others for sinning because you're pretty close to falling off the edge yourself. You're pretty close to, to stepping off the edge and, and gossiping yourself. Paul says these things were written down for them and for our benefit that we might not desire sin as they did and evil. So I don't know about you guys, but no matter how hard I try, I still sin. I'll admit I'm a sinner. Like uh, I, I ask God to take things away from my life, but he still doesn't sometimes. And I, I still have uh, temptation and, and everything like that in my life. But I heard something this week that really made me think of what being a follower of Christ really was. So this it said, being a follower of Christ doesn't mean that you don't sin. Being a follower of Christ means that you don't love to sin. Being a follower of Christ doesn't mean that you don't sin. Being a follower of Christ means that you don't love to sin. It reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 7, 15 through 19. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So even though we're followers of Christ, we still have this natural inclination, this natural uh, in nature to want to sin. The thing about it is we just shouldn't love sinning. We shouldn't love to do the things that the world does. That's what sets us apart from the world is that whenever we sin, we, we, sh we should feel conviction. We should repent from those sins. Now, Paul shifts to one of the, verse, one of the most misunderstood verses in, in the entire Bible, I would say. He, he says this. He says, No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be, may be able to endure it. So this scripture is one of the most encouraging to me in the entire Bible, but it's all often taken out of context and misquoted and, and just ripped apart. He says, first of all, that all temptation is the same. There's nothing new under the sun. So the temptation that you're going through right now, someone else has already gone through that. They've already made it through that temptation. And then he says that God is faithful and he won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. And this is the part where everybody shouts like, amen, like preach it, brother, that's good. And then they don't even go on to the rest of the verse. They just stop right there. But the most important part comes right after. He says, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
And that's the part that everybody forgets to talk about. It's our job to find the way of escape that God is providing for us. He says right there, he says that I'm going to provide the way of escape. You just have to find it. You just have to find the one way of escape that I'm providing for you. I think people often justify their sin because they say, oh, God didn't provide a way of escape for me in that temptation. Well, yeah, he did. What he's saying, well, you're saying right now, he's saying, well, it's not my fault. It's not my fault I sin. Well, yeah, it is. You're the one who opens up the web browser. You're the one who buys the alcohol. You're the one who listens to the gossip and then gossips back. That's, That's on you. That's not on God. God provides the way of escape in each of those temptations to sin. I think of it like an Indiana Jones movie. So who has seen an Indiana Jones movie? Anybody? Yeah, so you guys know probably the basic storyline. So Indiana Jones is going, and he's, he's got to get this treasure, right? He's, he's going to get the treasure, and along the way, there's always what that pop up? There's always booby traps, right, that try to stump, make him stumble and make him, like, kill him, actually. And, like, I, I think, like, so think of sin as the treasure that Indiana Jones is going to get. So that's our path to sin. I think God puts little booby traps along the way that, that should make us turn around and question what we're doing. But I think we often think of the, those little booby traps, whenever we get around those little booby traps, we're like, ooh, now it's even easier to do this sin, right? But that's not the way that we should think. We, we're not Indiana Jones. We're not in a movie. We should do what Paul says in, verses 14, in verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. That's my second point today is that run from your idols. Run from your idols, Paul says that I'm writing these things down because I love you. Run away from idolatry. And I say the same thing to you today. Run away from idolatry. If you have anything in your life that you're slightly concerned could be an idol, like run away from that thing, whatever it is. When you realize that there's something in your life that you're worshiping more than you worship God, that you're loving more than you love God, run away from that thing, whatever it may be. Acts 3.19 gives us a perfect outline for how to do this. It says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. So do these two things whenever you find an idol in your life. First, repent. Repent. It says repent. Well, what is repent? Repent means to be going in one direction and to ask for forgiveness and turn around and go to the other direction. And that's the second thing it says in that verse. It says turn back. It says turn back. Run away from that idol. How desperate are you to, to evict idols from your life? How, how desperate are you? Are you desperate enough to, to not have a laptop? Are you desperate enough to, to go back to using an old flip phone so you're not constantly on social media or scrolling through your phone for four or five hours a day? Maybe there's steps that you need to take to evict those idols from your life. This is the big idea that Paul is saying all throughout this text. He says, you cannot have idols in your life and worship God at the same time. You cannot have idols in your life and worship God at the same time. He's, here's what I want you to imagine right now. I want you to imagine that, that in your heart, there's a little throne. like Picture like a king's throne, and there's something sitting on that throne right now. It could, be, it could be God. It could be social media. It could be work. It could be your family. It could be anything. Something right now, though, is sitting on the throne of your heart. Something is sitting on that throne. It's up to you to know what that thing is. And if there's something sitting on that throne right now that's not God, God gets kicked out of that throne because there's only room for one thing on the throne of your heart. There's only one thing that you can truly worship. And we see this flushed out in Matthew 6.24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And while this verse is specifically talking about money, I believe it applies to all potential idols within our lives. That's why Paul is saying, don't mess around with idols. They're not good. Run away from them. He says, look what happened to the Israelites whenever they were practicing idolatry. They were stricken with plagues. They were killed. Other bad things happened to them. It's all because of the first three commandments that Larry read earlier. The first three commandments all deal with idolatry. Exodus 20, 3 and 4 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Our God is a jealous God, guys. He doesn't tolerate idols in our life. He can't be the, on the throne of our hearts when, whenever we're worshiping idols that, that aren't him. There's no room for God and idols in your life. The thing is, guys, that we can, we can turn good things into idols really, really easily. And we have to realize that it's okay to have possessions. It's okay to have things in your life. It's okay to have family. It's okay to have social media. It's okay to have money. It's okay to have all these other things. We just can't let them have us and control us. I want you to fill in a blank in this sentence. It's okay to have blank, but just don't let blank have you. What is that blank in your life? Only you can truly know. We as a culture are seeking to satisfy a need with that blank that only God can satisfy. And that's what the heart of idolatry essentially is. Idolatry is just disordered love. It's, it's just so, loving something more than you love God. And the thing that you love most affects all the other loves within your life. Romans 125 tells us that this disordered love has been a thing since the beginning. It says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. My question is to you today, what idols have your heart? What idols have your heart? What is seated on that throne of your heart right now? Maybe it's your family and the thought of losing, God forbid, a, a child or, or a spouse totally messes you up. If you were to lose one of them, you wouldn't be able to live anymore. You would, you would have no want to anymore in your life. Maybe it's something less, like, not, not important, but something like sports. And maybe you're one of those people that uh, leaves early during the last song of a Packer game so you can catch the noon kickoff. Or maybe you don't even come to church whenever the Packers are playing because you want to watch the whole game. Maybe it's social media and the thought without, of, of going a week without social media totally messes up your life. And I would just say this about social media. Social media is a great tool. I believe that God has allowed us to have social media and technology so we can spread the gospel throughout the world. And that's happening through places like the Bible app that's giving translations uh, all throughout the world. But I would just say this too. Social media and, and technology can also become very, very real idols within our lives. I would just say this. If you're on your phone for more hours in a day than you spend praying and reading your Bible in a week, I think that could be evidence of idolatry within your life. Maybe it's politics and you're always watching the news or, or listening to talk radio. Maybe it's uh, shopping and you love to go shopping or you're shopping on Amazon. You love to have that package show up at your door. I admit, that's mine. Like, I, I, I love to get new stuff and um, that's, that's my idol, but I need to work on it. Maybe your, your idol is work, and your family doesn't even know who you are anymore because you spend all your time devoted to your work. 
Maybe your idol is your pastor. Maybe it's Pastor Craig. I can just say this. You can still love and appreciate all that Pastor Craig does without making him an idol. You can even turn church into an idol and your church family into an idol. Anything can be an idol. David Foster Wallace, who was an author and a writer, he gave a commencement speech a few years back where he flushed out worship. And I'd like you to keep in mind that Wallace here, he's not a believer, and he said these things. He said, because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or some other set of ethical principles, the, the truth is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real life meaning, then you will never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we already know this stuff. It's been confided in myths and proverbs and cliches and parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. You will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're all unconscious. They are default settings. Whether he knows it or not here, he's, he's describing original sin, our natural inclination to want to put other things on the throne of our heart rather than God. So what's on the throne of your heart today? If it's anything besides God and Jesus, you'll keep searching and searching and searching until you ultimately die. Shortly after Wallace uh, said this in the commencement speech, he actually committed suicide because I believe he was worshiping the things that were created rather than the creator himself. The choice that you have to make is not if you're going to worship, it's what are you going to worship. Are you making the constant choice to put God on that throne of your heart daily, or are you making the choice to put other things on the throne of your heart? God will not put up with his people worshiping idols. We see that all throughout scripture. But ultimately, like everything else, the choice is not if we're going to worship, it's what or who are we going to worship. As we talked about earlier, even though the the people of Israel saw their physical needs provided for, their spiritual lives were were a wreck. They were practicing idolatry, but God still gave them that rock. Who who did we say that rock was? That rock was Jesus. He was, was Christ, right? And the good news is that we still have that same rock thousands of years later today. The only difference is he's pouring out a different type of water. Look at this. In, in John 4, 13, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the kind of water that Jesus provides for us today, guys. Not the water that makes us thirsty again, but the kind of water that cleanses us, that makes us new, that gives us eternal life. That's the kind of water that we have the opportunity to drink today. The only thing you have to do is choose to drink it. You just have to choose to respond in faith and say, I want to drink that water today. I put my faith and trust in you, Jesus. 
Maybe you, you have put your faith and trust in Jesus before and, and you're just struggling with some idols in your life. Maybe you, you find yourself pouring out everything you have into others, but you're empty yourself. If I've ever heard God speak to me before, he spoke to me this week and it was so clear. He said this, he said, until my people see me as their savior, they have no need to serve me. Until my people see me as their savior, they have no need to serve me. I ask you, are you serving him without knowing him as your savior today? I don't know who that word's for, but maybe it's for you. Maybe you need to see him as your savior before you can continue to serve him. Let's pray together. I would just read this to send us off today. Ephesians 3.20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. You are sent.